This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from history to business, and of course, military stories and love stories, and even stories about death, personal struggle. You name it, we tell the story, and send your stories to us at Our American Network, because you and your stories are the hour in Our American Stories, and we produce them often here on this show. And by the way, we'd love to hear your stories about landmarks in your town. That's favorite restaurants, joints, bars, places to go see a band, a place in a park, whatever. Send those stories of your favorite landmarks to ouramericannetwork.org. And Pink's Hot Dogs is a landmark hot dog restaurant in Los Angeles. Richard Pink is the owner. And we love to hear from small and big business owners alike here on Our American Stories and the story of Pink's Hot Dogs. Well, it's as American as it gets. Pink's Hot Dogs was established in 1939 by Paul and Betty Pink. It was established with just a little push cart. And my parents were out of work at the time, and they were looking for employment, and they ran across an ad for a push cart. And it cost $50. And my parents did not even have the $50, and they had to borrow it from my grandmother. And the push cart was available about two miles away from here, and my mother went down to where it was located and wheeled it all the way up Melrose Avenue and put it right here on the site of La Brea and Melrose. And she rented that site for $15 a month at that time. And it was the hot dogs were 10 cents and Cokes were a nickel. And believe it or not, there wasn't even electricity on the site. And they had to buy about a 100-yard extension cord to plug into a neighboring hardware store. And that's how they fired up Pink's in 1939. And for the next two years, they just had the hot dog cart. And then in 41, they built a smaller version of the building that you see today. And then in 1946, the very hot dog stand you see is what it looked like back then. And we haven't changed a thing since then. My parents had curbside service and people would drive up and park and they would bring them out a hot dog and a Coke and that's how it was back then. It's the entertainment capital of the world. And we've got Paramount Studios, 20th Century Fox, Universal Studios. They're all in and around here and all the production offices are here. And so when celebrities came out from whatever city they were from in order to get discovered, they didn't have any money at the time and they could afford a hot dog. And then they started putting their pictures up on our wall. Now, today, we have over 200 celebrities on our wall. But in those days, they put their pictures up there because they were hoping that some of the directors and producers would discover them. They came in for a hot dog, and then, you know, they would get discovered. We've got the Ozzy Osbourne dog, Rosie O'Donnell. We got Martha Stewart. Martha Stewart actually waited in line here for about 45 minutes and created her own hot dog. And, you know, we've got a number of celebrities that have come in, but also the, the movie Mulholland Drive was filmed here, so we got a Mulholland Drive dog. We've got a Harry Potter dog. we got a Lord of the Rings dog. I mean, we got a lot of exciting hot dogs. It turned out people tended to want to order a hot dog by name rather than just a chili cheese dog. They wanted to have a name attached to it. But the chili cheese dog, that's what made us famous. People are always looking for new, something new to market their, their property, uh, whether it's an amusement park or the, even the airport for that matter. And so they came to us and they said, look, you're world famous and we really need something that's very special, very unique. 
And that's how really we came to Cedar Point. They had tried us out at Knott's Berry Farm, which is probably the most famous amusement park in all of Southern California, maybe all of California. And then the owners of Knott's Berry Farm said, you know, you're selling so well, I know you're going to do well at Cedar Point back in Ohio. So we'd love you to come back here. We want to bring your brand. We want to bring the concept, the image, the whole celebrity connection back to Ohio. And we said, fine, because we really like the way you operate pinks over at Knott's Berry Farm. I understand that we sell more hot dogs in California than New York and Chicago, believe it or not, maybe because of our weather, okay? And a lot of people, you know, bring hot dogs to picnics throughout the year and so forth. But in terms of pinks, I mean, we're on the cable channel, we're on the food network, we're on the travel channel and all that. That has put out the word so whenever you come to Los Angeles, you want a great hot dog. And I think every bit is good and probably even better. I'll challenge New York, I'll challenge Chicago, that our hot dogs are even better. And that's what those people that come in from those cities tell us. Pink's is at the corner of La Brea and Melrose in Hollywood. We are open from 9.30 in the morning until 2 a.m. every day, except on the weekends, 3 a.m., and in the summers to 4 a.m. It's the place you come after you've spent the evening at a club, and, you, and Pink's is a party. Yes, it's very delicious. Um, I got the spicy Polish dog. It's really, really good, but really spicy. <laughs> and uh, I got the same thing, and again, it's spicy, but it's, it's really good. It's... Probably one of the best hot dogs I've ever had. I think it was called a stretch uh, hot dog with chili. And uh, I thought both the meat and the bun were just out of this world. I, I would say it's the best hot dog I've ever had in my life. And nothing is close to it. Come all the time. We live here. Uh, so I go by uh, from my house to my office. I go by here uh, twice a day. Um, I ordered a chili cheese dog, and it was really good. I liked it a lot. It was very good. I liked it. Yeah. And they are all right, by the way. Mine's the Brando dog. Try it sometime. If you're ever in La Brea and Melrose in L.A., this is the place to go. Best to go late night. It's even tastier. No one knows why. This is science, folks. It's not my opinion. It's a proven fact. But I've had pinks as early as 10 a.m. It does not get better. And uh, by the way, Mark's Hot Dog in Bergenfield, New Jersey, a close runner-up, the world's best onion sauce. But if you like a chili cheese dog, the buns are perfect, the chili's perfect. I'm getting hungry just talking about it. Again, if you have a place, a landmark, a favorite joint, tell us about it. Just go to OurAmericanNetwork.org. This is Lee Habib, Pink's Hot Dogs, their story here on Our American Stories.
And we continue with Our American Stories, and now we bring you Doug Ryder with his next edition of our Founders Series, a series about how everyday Americans risk it all to follow their dreams, how people amidst doubts and challenges become founders of great businesses, enterprises, churches, nonprofits, firms. My goodness, as Tocqueville noted when he visited this great country, Americans start up well, just about every kind of enterprise imaginable. Here's Doug with another Founders story. Today, on The Founders. Would work on old engines as early as seven years old. In this episode, we bring you an inventive farm boy from Newburgh, Oregon. A boy obsessed with engines and filled with insecurities. I felt very insecure. No self-confidence. Something happened that really changed my life. I got the flu right at the beginning of school. And I was home in bed with that, and the student elections came up for the freshman class, and somebody nominated me for student council freshman representative. And I came back to school and got, congratulations, you represent the freshman class on the student council. And I feel it as I tell you now, I was like, wow. Somebody likes me. This is the story of how a boy would battle these insecurities his entire life. If that hadn't happened, would I withdrawn and stayed a hermit on the farm in my engines? And would one day build the second largest dental equipment manufacturing company in the world? On today's episode of The Founders, we bring you the story of Ken Austin. All I knew was a farm life. I had very few toys. I think I was about nine when my grandmother gave me a calf for a Christmas present. I was so disappointed. I mean, who wanted a darn calf? And in 1942, my dad sent me a postcard when I was down at summer school. Your heifer had a beautiful little heifer calf. Now I've got two cows. I was getting pretty excited because dad was buying the milk. So I had to pay for the feed, but he would buy the milk from me. And by the time I got to high school, I had over 10 cows. Sold the cows and bought a car and a welder and started a shop called The Rod Shop and was welding fenders and painting cars and fixing engines. I wanted more than I had. I had this want, 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 want. And it was like, if you want it, you got to work for it. And that want that Ken talks about often came from his need to prove something to himself and to others. As a sophomore, I was building a desk as a class project. And the teachers I've learned from him, you were one of the fastest productive kids I ever had in class but you were the last one to ever get a project done. In other words, I had my desk cut out and ready to start gluing up. Then I went around the room and was BSing with the other students and telling them how cool. And as, as one of my high school classmates told me, you have an inferiority complex that you're trying to cover up with a superiority complex. A psychiatrist told me one time that was probably some of the best advice ever given to me. And, and I really see that. Uh, I was t- trying to look good. 
No, I wasn't building the desk to cut it out fast to look good, but once it was done, I had to tell the world, look what I have done. You know, it was a big I in it. I think that, that ego is, is our enemy, and, and I really have come to believe in the last 30 years of my life that ego is edging God out. Edging God out, E-G-O. Ken's thirst for attention carried on through college. Pursuing a degree in industrial engineering at Oregon State University, his academics would often come second to his active social life. The pickup truck and a couple cases of beer, you were dang popular. So popular that his Navy ROTC commitment was in jeopardy. Mr. Austin, we're sorry, but you're going to have to take the freshman year of ROTC over and start next year again. So heck with you guys. And Colonel Morris was our commander. And I met him on the Memorial Union steps one day and he said, how you doing? And I said, I'm going to quit school and join the Air Force to be a cadet there. And he said, do you know you'll be scrubbing sidewalks for a year? as an enlisted man because you're too young to get get through the officer training. Do you want to scrub sidewalks? <laughs> I thought, heck no, I don't want to scrub sidewalks. If that hadn't happened, I might have dropped out of school. But I was determined that I was going to go to Pio School. With a renewed focus, Ken decided to stay in school and enrolled in the Air Force ROTC program. And despite Ken's mind now being in the clouds, his true love was still on the ground. Ken continued to work with cars, now not only building them, but racing them too. We went down to the drag races, and I was racing two cars. I picked up a girl and, that I was dating, and at Oregon State, making the fourth foursome. And she had my fraternity pin. I had pinned her. It's a yeah. promise thing of, I love you and we'll go further. And we came back from that day of at the racetrack and my girlfriend said, either you give up the idea of being a pilot in the Air Force and racing cars or you can have your pin back. I said, okay, and put my hand out. Then she started to cry and begging and I said, it won't work. Ken would not let a girl tell him what to do. And so he moved on. Rather quickly, Ken started dating a girl named Joanne, the sister of an Air Force buddy, who's also from his hometown, Newburgh, Oregon. A year later, they married. Everything seemed to be on the up and up for Ken. But on the verge of graduation, Ken found out the Air Force had another plan for him. He was commissioned as an officer. Ken rolled with the punches. He went to pilot school to become a mechanic and test pilot, where he finished his degree and earned his diploma. But while starting a family, going from job to job in the Air Force as a test pilot, radar controller, and maintenance officer, Ken wasn't sure if a career in the military was right for him or his family. Colonel Gabreski, the World War II ace, uh was our base commander, and he said, if I can get you a flying assignment, will you stay two more years? And that was a decision point that 
Joanne and I had to deal with is we're ready to go home or go on two years of the Air Force. And I had to make that decision overnight. Tell, tell the colonel the next morning one way or the other. And, I, and we chose to come home. Ken goes from job to job as a machinist and an engineer. Seven jobs in eight years. Needless to say, Ken was ready to be his own boss. After getting fired from a dental equipment manufacturing company in Denver for not completing a complicated project in time, Ken saw an opportunity and he took it. I saw some guys doing something I could do, no patents or more, and told Joanne we could go back to Portland and start a little business making dental vacuum systems, selling them to the individual doctors or to distributors, because there's nobody doing that in Oregon, the independent maker of vacuum systems. And she said, I'll help you even if we have to live on bread and beans. And uh, came, took out a piece of paper and started sketching what I was going to do tomorrow and start making parts tomorrow. And that was the beginning of Ken Austin's very own company, ADEC. That starts a whole new journey and actually a whole bunch of new problems. A whole new journey and a whole new bunch of problems. And when we come back, more of Ken Austin's story. And again, it's a part of our Founders series. Brought to us by Doug Ryder. And if you have a founder in your neighborhood, and my goodness, they're everywhere, folks, and they don't have to be titans of industry and have founded billion-dollar companies. There are founders everywhere in this country, in every town, in every hamlet. When we come back, more of Ken Austin's story, a founder's story, part of our Founders series here on Our American Stories. To hear more stories like this, Follow us on Facebook and go to our website at OurAmericanNetwork.org to sign up for our newsletter so that we could send you our best stories every week. More of Our American Stories after the break. return to the story of Ken Austin and let's get back to Doug Ryder. This again, a part of the Founders series. After getting the go-ahead from his wife, Joanne, Ken was ready to get working on his first ADEC product. The air vacuum system. For years, going to the dentist meant spitting into bowls. Ken Austin's invention, the air vacuum system, made that a thing of the past. And I went to a little shop that was there in Broomfield, Colorado, where we lived, and asked if I could rent their machinery to make a prototype. And it worked, and he got a few sales and improved on his product, eventually getting the attention of what was at the time the largest dental equipment manufacturing company 
in the United States. They loved his products so much, they placed a $12,000 order, worth almost a hundred grand today. Though Ken did not have the money in the bank to complete such a large order. So... The company that bought my first product grubstaked me with a $10,000 check on a $12,000 order. And I remember telling the man as he handed me the check, I don't know how you can trust me or how you, how, why you're doing this after I've had seven jobs. This is my eighth job in eight years after college and I've been fired on three occasions. And Mr. Max said, I trust you. And good thing he did because Ken would create some of the most innovative equipment in dentistry, including one of the first sit-down dental units. You might not remember this, but dentistry used to be a standing profession. But thanks to Ken Austin, dentists can now sit while working, avoiding years of chronic back problems. With the growth of ADEC, Ken was consumed by his business and the wealth and status that came with it, leaving what's most important in the rearview mirror. Our social life changed with wealth. When you get invited to be on boards and things that, you know, it's like, wow, this is really cool. But we were invited to join the Young Presidents Organization. And now you're with some high rollers around the world and a good opportunity to drink the best booze in the best places uh, with, you might say, the best people. And Ken liked his booze, maybe a bit too much. And um, I just made an ass of myself. And I started searching during that period of time, is, is, is there anything you can do about it? And at first, Ken's wife, Joanne, did not take his problem very seriously. Well, you just drank too much last night. Don't drink quite so much. But when we've both been on an alcoholic recovery program uh, and talking about that subject only, she told the, the um, audience, a question was asked, did you ever think about divorce? We never talked about divorce or separation and it just surprised me when she said, oh yes, many times. So she went through a lot of silent pain, which hurts me today to think of what I put her through. The last five years of our life were very, very good together, making up for all of those bad times. But you can't go back and fix those bad times, when, especially when somebody's gone. And it has an effect on your kids. You know, like my son said, Dad, you were never, never able to play ball with me because you'd have say you want to drink a beer and then it was like one more beer and then you say, well, I can't catch the ball because I can't see it. <laughs> well, I was never a ball player, but that, that was what was happening. Yeah. Drink was more important than family. Well, after reading this article from the, about these businessmen in Portland that had this wetting the bed problem, and I was having that problem, I thought, maybe I have a problem. Ten years later, Ken learned to manage his insecurities and his ego. 
formally filling the hole in his heart with his ambition, accomplishments, and alcohol, Ken now found something more lasting. January 1st, 1982. All I had to do was admit I was powerless over alcohol and that my life had become unmanageable. And I can turn my will and my life over to a power greater than myself. God as we understand him. And I thought, God is a punishing God for sin. I have been named, signed, sealed, and delivered as a sinner. This is impossible. I don't know how Hal did it. And I closed my eyes and I was just sitting there by the window of our beach house. I opened my eyes and a seagull went by the window. Who makes seagulls? Who makes seagulls? Nobody I know. That must be God. And I accepted that there is a God greater than myself, a power greater than myself, and the God that I understand is the maker and the creator, because who makes the waves in the ocean? Who makes the tide? I know who raises the level of the Columbia River when they open the Bonneville Dam. That's man. But it isn't somebody over in England says, shift the, the wind and pushes a big lever. And that, that, that experience of there's a power greater than myself. And I haven't had a drink since that day. 37 years ago. And thanks so much to Ken Austin, especially for his vulnerability, for his authenticity, and for sharing, well, not just the good in his life, but the unpleasant too. And it takes a lot of guts to do that. And it helps people. And it helps people understand other people. And helps us all understand each other when we're open and honest. And that's what we try and do here on this show all the time. And special thanks also to Doug Ryder, the Founders series that we're doing. Well, it's founders of companies like ADEC, and that's Ken's company that he founded. But in the end, it'll be every kind of company, entity, church, nonprofit, you name it. And if you've got a founder and a founder's story you want told, send it to ouramericannetwork.org, ouramericannetwork.org. And founders are just different. They're not better, they're not worse. They've got to go their own way. And starting up something from scratch and building it up, oh my goodness, it's a wonderful thing and it's an awful thing because there's a lot of sacrifices that get made and a lot gets lost. And we learn from Ken, my goodness. Well, he said he'd become quite, well, he put it best, an ass. And the wealth and the and the privileges that came with building a great company, well, his family was squandered. And ultimately, he just kept hitting the bottle. Well, you know the story. And let's face it, thank goodness for ADEC. I mean, my goodness, I remember when I would have to spit into a bottle, it would get all over me, and it just made the, the experience of getting a root canal or anything else, well, even more unpleasant. And it's not pleasant. It's never going to be. Whoever comes up with that invention, my goodness, that's something and allowing dentists to sit 
uh, they had always stood before and what a life-altering accomplishment and achievement that was. And again, through the innovation of free enterprise and the miracle of free enterprise. And then again, there's Ken's story about his walk with God. Who made the seagulls? Nobody I know. That must be God. And on that day in January of 1982, when he finally admitted that he was powerless over alcohol, he hasn't had a drop in 37 years. And what a story. Thanks again to Ken Austin, his story, ADEX story, our Founders series, here on Our American Stories. stories and we tell stories about everything here on this show and we love the intersection of music and story and the story of a song and by the way you can go to our american network and hear all of our stories of a song this one is about a beach boy gem called good vibrations let's hear the guitars please is it possible for a song to be simultaneously revered and underappreciated if so Good Vibrations by the Beach Boys falls into this category. Okay, that's fine. Let's make it. Take one. Hell, let's go, man. Here we go. Play hard and strong all the way. Music critics have celebrated the song, voting it number one in Mojo's Top 100 Records of All Time and number six on Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs of All Time. The song has been cited as a forerunner to the Beatles' A Day in the Life in 1967, and Queen's Bohemian Rhapsody in 1975. Good Vibrations is composed by Brian Wilson with lyrics by Mike Love. Released on October 10, 1966, just five months after their revolutionary opus, Pet Sounds, the single was an immediate critical and commercial hit, topping record charts in several countries including the US and the UK, Good Vibrations later became widely acclaimed as one of the finest and most important works of the rock era. Over 90 hours of tape was consumed during the dozen-plus sessions across four different studios. This process was reflected in the song's several dramatic shifts in key, texture, instrumentation, and mood. Good Vibrations was the costliest single ever recorded at the time of its release. Here's the story of Good Vibrations, beginning with music journalist and, as a side note, the man credited with giving Jimi Hendrix the idea of setting fire to his guitar, Keith Altham. 
Good Vibrations was just the, the, the perfect encapsulation of what he was doing with pet sounds, I suppose. It was a mixture of all those sounds and things that he had accumulated for pet sounds and put into a condensed version for a single. Here's Beach Boy, Bruce Johnston. I think if Good Vibrations had been on pet sounds, uh, we would probably own the galaxy by now. You know, I mean, what do you do after Good Vibrations, if, and if, especially it's on that, if it's on that album? But uh, it didn't work out that way. Here's Brian Wilson. I managed to get pet sounds with Tony, and then I said to Tony, I'm going to write a song all about Good Vibrations. My mother told me when I was a kid that dogs pick up vibrations from people, and if they feel threatened, they bark. Yeah, I'm picking up good vibrations. Mike, Mike came up. I said, "This song's called Good Vibrations," and he goes, "I'm picking up vibrations." He wrote that bass line. Here's Mike Love. Good vibrations was done in sections at different studios. It took me six weeks for to get, have it produced. Here's recording engineers Bruce Botnick and Mark Linnett. This is definitely Gold Star. Because uh, when, when it makes the cut. I, I can definitely hear the sound of Sunset Sound on the drums. It's much drier and not as roomy. One, two, three, four. And this part, the, the cellos and the theremin are overdubbed. And Brian also pulled out a large portion of the, of the three track. There's a piano in there that, that he pulled out as much as he could. And again, mixed it down to mono. And, and this is the same verse from Gold Star. Did he repeat the verse yeah, I believe and so. made a copy? Yeah. And the choruses are definitely repeated. Yeah. And here's the piano. and a juice harp. That was an overdub. And finally, there was a composite of, uh, that became the actual track to Good Vibrations, and he gave it to me in the form of an acetate, which I was able to play. And uh, I actually dictated the uh, lyrics to Good Vibrations uh, on the way to the studio to my then-wife, Suzanne, and uh, I... I wrote this poem, I love the colorful clothes she wears and the way the sunlight plays upon her hair, that kind of thing. And I came up with, I'm picking up good vibrations, she's giving me the excitations, to, to paraphrase the, the bass part, which is... So it was, I came up with the words and that hook, and Brian did the brilliant track, so it was a true collaboration. Here's A&R executive at Capitol Records, Carl Ingeman. Good Vibration was a record that took him a long time to make in between uh, different albums and things like that. And to me, Good Vibrations is perhaps the greatest rock and roll record of all time. Well, the, the night we cut Good Vibrations, the, the guys had a really lot of fun, you know. They really liked it. They said, Brian, this is going to be a number one record. I, I love the colorful Let's take a walk through this number one hit. The first verse is built around an ethereal descending chord progression in E-flat minor. I hear the sound of a gentle wind. 
On the wind that lifts her perfume through the air. And then we hit the first chorus. I'm picking up good The chorus starts in G flat major, and then with each repetition, the chorus climbs upward, providing a counterpoint to the verse's descending chord progression. Then, we go back to the verse. Check out the bass line. Listen to how high it is. Softly smile, I know she must be kind. Instead of just playing the root of the main chord in the song, the bass is actually creating a counter melody. At the time, hardly anyone was using bass lines in this way. I'm picking up After this verse, we return to the chorus, carried by a new instrument called an electrotheremin that inhabited the good vibrations and the Beach Boys' patented harmony. Then we hit the first of two interludes, or episodic digressions. This section is greeted with a sudden tape splice, which is a clear edit between two sessions that were recorded at different times in the studios. This part of the song might normally be called a bridge, but instead of cutting back to the chorus like a bridge might, we cut into the second part of the episodic digression. This tape splice is even more dramatic than the first. Gotta keep those loving good vibrations are happening with her. Gotta keep those loving good vibrations are happening with her. Gotta keep those loving good vibrations. Just as we're floating through the air, a five-part harmony wakes us back up as we punch into the chorus. This chorus starts in the reverse direction, beginning in B-flat and working down back to where we started out in G-flat. series of harmonies, juddering cellos, and the electrotheremin carry us out. Good Vibrations was dubbed a pocket symphony, and its production elements and symphonic structures would be echoed in dozens of songs in the decades to come. So, whenever you're talking about the greats in rock, be sure to give Brian Wilson and the Beach Boys a little love. I'm Greg Hingler, and this is Our American Stories. And great job as always, Greg. And for anyone who thinks the Beach Boys were lightweights, well, think again after hearing that story. And by the way, listening to our story on multi-track recordings and the battle between the Beatles and the Beach Boys for production ascendance. And my goodness, it was the Beach Boys who affected the Beatles. 
and not the other way around. And by the way, to hear our stories of a song, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org. There you will find the story of George on my mind. Light my fire by the doors. Jesus, take the wheel. There goes my life. Why me, my Lord, by Chris Christopherson, and so many others. Combining always the arts of storytelling and music here on Our American Stories, the story of a song. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And this next story, well, it's close to home. And by the way, the best stories that we all have are right near us, folks, in our neighborhood, in our families, in our churches, in our businesses. And here at Our American Stories, we've gotten to know one of our workers, an affiliate sales guy from Alabama, and a great guy, a great family. Well, he shared his story with me, and I was just... Well, it wasn't just me. It was everybody in the room listening. It was as if we were hearing a movie being told, a great movie, a compelling movie. It was a heck of a story. And so we asked him to tell it. And so, without further ado, this is a story about everything, folks. Love, hate, family, and redemption. Um, I I had a pattern in my life of... um uh, w- with girls, um, putting me in the friend zone. Um, and one of the, uh, the, the very first girl that ever put me in the friend zone, I remember was in eighth grade and I was in Mr. Dunn science class. And, um, you know, I remember seeing her, um, as it was yesterday. And I, I remember leaning over to my friend Ryan and saying, who's that? And, um, neither of us knew who she was. And I, um, developed the courage to ask her to eighth grade graduation dance. And I guess what I mean by develop the courage, I asked one of her friends to ask her if she would go to the eighth grade graduation dance with me. And, and she said, yes, after that, I, um, you know, told her how much I liked her, wanted to be with her, professed my, you know, undying love for her. And, um, she put me in the friend zone and that, and that would be a pattern that we go on for, for the kind of, uh, the long haul, um, you know, looking back at my childhood, um, there's a, a couple key, key moments that really, um, you know, stick out to me, you know, as far as I can remember, you know, my mom and my dad never really being together. Like that's never a memory that I can remember them actually being together, or being married. But, um, I do remember as it got to be about my first grade year, my mother joined the army. Um, uh, she would kind of bounced around from job to job and couldn't find anything solid. And she really wanted to do something. Uh, to support us, um, and and I have a, a brother, um, Brad, who is um, he's two years older than me, but we have different dads. She um, eventually got stationed in Germany, and that launched into a giant custody battle. Uh, my dad was a very responsible, hardworking, structured individual, and the obvious best place for me would have been with my father. But um, the court's tendency is to always place the child with the mother unless there's just a an absolute you know 
crazy circumstance that would, would lead them to do otherwise. But at that point, I was going to be with my dad, and um, my mom um, had me go out to lunch right before, really, they were going to make their decision, and we had um, a lunch with my brother, and she basically said, well, you don't want to leave your brother, do you? And, you know, there's castles in Germany, and, and basically said all the things to that you'd want to tell a kid to make them want to go that way. And I just remember the biggest feeling having is that I didn't want to leave my brother, um, didn't want to leave my brother in that environment without me to be there with him. And I was, I think, seven years old at that time. And um, I went back and told the judge that I didn't want to go with my dad, as I had said previously, that I that I wanted to go with my mom. And, and that was ended up being the ruling after all the time and money and everything that was spent on that custody battle. Um, and I remember leaving the courthouse that day at seven years old, six years old, whatever it was. And, um, my dad looking down at me as we waited for the, the light to turn across the road, he said, you know, I'm very disappointed in you. And that kind of set a pattern really for the rest of my life with my father that I, uh, was kind of a, a, a disappointment. Um, and then when we moved to Germany, uh, my mom was still, uh, with this abusive guy. He's the one that convinced her to join the army. Um, and when we moved to Germany, um, we lived in what's called the economy. So we didn't live on base. We lived, um, in an apartment above a pub and the pub was called Klaus's pub. And, um, my mom and, and her husband, Dave would drink every night. Um, and they would fight every night and sometimes it would become abusive and sometimes the screaming and the, um, all those things got to be so bad. Uh, my brother and I would always wonder um, if, if it was going to be us next. And, and fortunately, um, we were never, um, you know, physically abused. Um, but, you know, I remember wanting to protect my mom, but only being, you know, eight years old and, and small and having this desire to protect my mom and inability to do so. And it kind of developed feelings of cowardice um, that I wasn't able, you know, to protect my mom. Um, that all came to an end when, uh, we started going to church. Um, and, uh, well, she, she left Dave, we moved on base. We started going to church, you know, Sunday morning, Sunday night, and on Wednesdays. And every time the doors were open, we got involved and, um, really began to experience, um, a sense of belonging. And that went on for about a year. Um, and there was no drinking and it was like this stability in our lives. It was like the calm and the storm of my life as I look back on it. Um, I remember coming home from school one day, um, it was one of my last days of fourth grade and I came home and, um, my mom had been, you know, free from drinking for a year, free from partying. Our life was, you know, so much better. I mean, I came home and there was a beer sitting on the end table beside the couch and I looked at the beer and I looked at my mom and I knew that we were going back into that lifestyle, um, and that all that peace and calm was over. I was old enough to equate beer with pain. Um, and you know, my mom drinking beer and alcohol with pain and suffering for my brother and I and instability. And, and I remember being fueled and filled with, with hatred and anger, uh, towards my mother. And I remember screaming at her and telling her that I hated her and that I wanted nothing to do with her and that I wanted to, to move back, um, you know, to the States and I wanted to move in with my dad. Then, um, when I moved in with my dad, I used to go to church with my friend Blair and his mom, and we would go to church and it would be fun and it would be fine. But then we'd get in the car and his mom would gossip about everybody in the church all the way home. And then she would pick us up and she actually gave us a ride to school on the days that the weather was bad. And she would just gossip about people in the church the whole way to school and the whole way back. 
And I'm like, you people are ridiculous. And so what I did is I took a few Christians and I labeled all Christians as these few, right? And so my mind, I had this core belief that all Christians were these gossipy, judgmental um, people. And so I hated them. And when we come back, we continue with this really raw and really real story. And it's Brian Dawson's story here on Our American Stories. back here at Our American Stories, and we continue this remarkable story, again, one that comes close to home, as close as can be, right here on our own staff. Let's continue with Brian Dawson's story. Um, that summer, I went back. So my mom moved back from Germany, and she went to Colorado Springs. So I, I went and spent a summer with my mom in Colorado. Well, my brother was two years older than me, and he had friends that were you know, drinking beer and drinking liquor and going camping and smoking pot and doing all that kind of stuff. And I went out there and I'd never been exposed to any of that stuff personally, obviously seeing my mom drinking and things like that, but never personally. And, um, you know, I remember, you know, drinking a beer and then, you know, trying, um, liquor and the, the, the first, first liquor I ever tasted was hot damn 100. And, um, I was the little brother of not only my big brother, but that whole group. And I fit in and I, and, and the more I drank, the more I fit in and the more I drank, the more comfortable I was in my own skin. You know, they call it liquid courage, but it was so much more than liquid courage for me. It was liquid. I can actually deal with life. Um, everything in my life, I've always been very intense and very, um, all in whatever it was that I was doing. And, and I began to drink, you know, heavily. I was drinking tequila, whiskey, um, hot damn that whole summer and, um, you know, the following summer I went back to Colorado and I started to smoke pot. And as I smoked pot, um, it was the same thing. You know, I, I just enjoyed not being who I guess I thought I was. You know, I, I eventually made it when I was 16 years old, I got my driver's license. I made a fake ID on a computer and, um, I got to the point where I could go and buy liquor. And then I became very popular for that reason. So there was a lot of it was fitting in and, and all of those things And I, I would go and I was able to, you know, buy liquor for these parties, which made me like the coolest person, you know, in the party. And, you know, I would drink to the point of blacking out once or twice a week. And this is as a 16 year old. And meanwhile, I was, you know, working a job at, um, Dylan's, which is a, a Kroger store and, uh, playing football, playing baseball and, and somewhat maintaining my grades. I went from a straight A student to probably about a C student. Um, and I just, I stopped caring about school, which is interesting because up to that point when I started, you know, drinking and, and doing drugs, all I cared about was school. I, I got straight A's. I scored off the charts on all these tests, the standardized tests. And, um, I didn't care about school anymore. All I cared about was the social aspect, the partying, the girls, um, and, and just, and, and being wasted basically. Um, the summer between my junior and senior year, I went out to Colorado and my brother was, 
um, a driver for a, I wouldn't say notorious, but a pretty big time drug dealer um, in Colorado Springs. Uh, his name was Casey. And um, my brother had a driver's license and a nice truck. So Casey would just, you know, have him drive him around and, you know, they'd be dropping, you know, mostly pot, but, you know, whatever around. And the craziest things would happen, man. So I spent the whole summer riding around with them, you know, just seeing him be this, this alpha male that everyone looked up to and everyone respected. And he had money and he had girls and he had all these things. And I'm like, that's what I want to do. So I went back to uh, Kansas that summer and, um, and here's the thing up to that point, I was excelling in football and I did really well in baseball too, but, um, I excelled in football and, um, we had a great football team that year and I was really coming into my own as a, a defensive end and, and, and a tight end on offense. And, um, we were expected to, to do really, really well that year. And I was so torn between really wanting to, to pour myself into football or pour myself into this party life. And, um, I had tried cocaine when I was out there. So I was, I was really starting to do more serious drugs as I'm going into my senior year. And I started my senior year and I got about two weeks into it and I snuck out of the house and I went and tried ecstasy with some of my friends. And a couple of the guys were actually um, football players on the team. And, um, I remember trying to sneak back in and I got caught and he told me that I had to quit football and go to rehab or I could quit football and go to, to Colorado, but I wasn't going to continue playing football. This is really when the resentment with my dad hit its peak. Um, and then kind of to give the narrative of my dad this whole time, again, him not being an emotional guy who, you know, says, hey, what's going on, Brian? Hey, you know, how are you feeling? How are you doing? Why are you doing this? It's, hey, I won't tolerate it. Not in this house. You ain't going to do that. Not my son. Those were kind of his ways of parenting was putting his foot down and yelling. Um, and, and again, you know, he didn't have a dad to, to teach him. So he, you know, he's a wonderful provider. He was at all my baseball games, all my football games, all my practices. Um, he got up at four 30 in the morning and went to work every day to make sure we had a house and things like that. So, um, I decided to quit football and move back to Colorado with my mom. And what that basically meant is I was on my own and I just started partying full blown. And I started working for Casey and started selling weed and um got involved in that lifestyle and then i started doing cocaine on a pretty regular basis and as i did cocaine i realized hey man i can't pay for cocaine selling weed so i started selling cocaine and i just had this knack and this ability to um rise to the top in these in these i guess you know drug dealer ladders uh of of influence um i just had a knack for for that life and um, so I started selling a little bit of Coke and next, you know, I was selling a lot of Coke and I was doing a lot of Coke and it got to the point, it was so bad. I would have to take Xanax to go to sleep and then I would wake up the next day and really the next evening at like four or five in the evening, I'd wake up, I'd blow my nose and snot and cocaine and blood would come out. My nose would just be bleeding and bleeding and bleeding. As soon as it would start to kind of slow down a little bit, I would do another line and start drinking. And then that was what I did. Um, and it got so bad to where I couldn't even like breathe out of my nose anymore. Um, my friend tried to introduce me to crack and, um, I'm like, this isn't for me. Um, so then, uh, he, um, he had me try, um, crystal meth and that was it. And once I did crystal meth, it was, um, there was no having to take Xanax to go to sleep. There was no drinking whiskey to mellow out. It was just, it was wide open. Um, and already at this point when I started doing meth, I already had, um, my first felony, uh, arrest, um, I was arrested with a half ounce of cocaine and, um, had bonded out and got probation and all those things and didn't slow me down. I, I continued to use drugs, continued to party, didn't go to my probation appointments, didn't do any of those things. 
and um, I got to a point where I was very well known in Colorado Springs um, for my ability to sell drugs and do a number of other things and I remember getting a phone call from a girl named Camille and she said um, I've got some pretty serious guys that I know um, that want to talk to you about you know kind of you partnering with them or working with them and so I came to her her apartment and I walked into her apartment I remember it it was um, kind of an uneasy feeling and um, there was um, some very mean looking um, dark uh, nefarious looking uh, individuals that were uh, Hispanic guys Mexican guys and they had handkerchiefs on over their faces and um, but they were in suits it was weird and I'm like, well, I'm either going to get killed or this is going to go really well. And, um, you know, they sat down and just talked to me and asked me a bunch of questions and asked me what I could do for them. And I think they were kind of new to coming into Colorado Springs to do what they, it was that they were wanting to do. And they needed somebody to help them. So um, they asked me to do that. And and I did that. And uh, not long after that, I ended up getting in a high-speed chase with the cops and ran. And I had a briefcase with meth and a pistol. Got pulled over with that, got arrested, um, spent four and a half months in jail, county jail on that, got probation again, got out, went right back to it. Um, and by that time, um, a lot of my connections had either gone back to Mexico or had been arrested as well. And I got into, um, basically, I mean, I guess what it looked like was we would steal four-wheelers and uh, motorcycles and things like that and give them to Mexicans that were bringing them back across the border into Mexico, and then they would pay us in drugs. I was supposedly the the ringleader of that whole thing. I don't know how true that was, but that's the way it was in the in the cops' eyes. And um, they busted a house that had some of those motorcycles in them, and um, they um, pressured the guy who was there, and, and he told on me and said, you know, it was me. I was the one that was doing this. I was running all these rings. So um, he and a bunch of other people had told the cops that I was responsible for you know all this crime that was going on, and um, I eventually got arrested. And I did another four months in county jail uh, and ended up bonding out after those four months. And in that time, I got my discovery and it said that, you know, who had told on me. Um, I was out um, driving around up to no good. I'd been up for four days. Um, we drove by the guy's house who told on me, who was the main informant in the case. And um, the guy I was with kept pumping me up. Oh, no, we have to go in there. You know, we can't let him, you know, just let him tell on you and you not doing anything. And so we went, you know, went up to the front door, knocked on the door, and he opened the door and um, walked in the house and asked him why he told on me. And he said, you know, told me, well, I didn't tell on you, Brian. I would never tell on you. And uh, I knew that he had, he was the informant in my case. So um, I began to, to beat him up really, really bad. And um, the guy I was with hit him in the head with a, a blunt force object. It was called a blackjack, and it cracked his head open. And I thought he was going to die. So, you know, we... Um, we grabbed a few objects out of his house and we left. And by the time I got back to my house, um, I ended up getting arrested and charged with attempted murder, uh, aggravated robbery and extortion. And on top of all that, this was a, a guy who was state's evidence. So he was an informant that I did all these things to. So that aggravated it. And my goodness, what a story. And when we come back, you won't believe where it turns and where it goes. Brian Dawson's story, one of our staffers here at Our American Stories. More after these messages.
we return to Brian Dawson's story here on Our American Stories. And let's pick up where we last left off. I was I was on the run. Uh, I bonded out again. And uh, I was out on like, I don't know, a couple hundred thousand dollars worth of bonds. And I was supposed to go to a court date. And I ended up not going to that court date. So I became a fugitive. And um, shortly after that, I became one of Colorado Springs' most wanted criminals, uh, most wanted fugitives. And it was intense. I mean, they were um, raiding houses. They were setting up perimeters all throughout Colorado Springs. As I don't know if you've ever seen them. Like, they basically have roads blocked off, and they're showing pictures of me to every car that stops and goes through there. Um, if you ever follow Dog the Bounty Hunter, um, Dog the Bounty Hunter did most of his shows in Colorado Springs. Some in Hawaii, but most of them were in Colorado Springs. And Dog the Bounty Hunter was on a 72-hour, 72-fugitive sweep when I was on the run. And he said he wasn't going to go after me because I was supposedly, you know, too threatening or, or menacing or whatever for him to go after me. Um, so it got, it became very real. And um, there was a couple near misses where they, they almost had me and I was able to escape from them. And then um, they finally caught me and I was in my safe, I guess you call it a safe house. Um, it was a third-story apartment in Colorado Springs and they finally closed in on me and I remember sitting in the apartment that day I was watching the Chappelle show it was my last day out July 19th 2007 I'm watching the Chappelle show cooking bratwurst in this apartment and I look out the window and I'm on the third story and I see the front end of a cop car and I know that it's a cop car and I knew that was it I just knew I knew um okay well this is it and um there wasn't much in the apartment but there was a recliner that was wider than the window was so I'd taken a uh, nylon rope, a rappelling rope, and I tied it to the bottom of the recliner. Um, and I hear the door pounding. Carter Springs police open up, and they're kicking in doors, making their way down to me. So I kick out the window and wrap my, my hand around the rope, and I jump out the window. And the recliner sticks and wedges right in the window just like I wanted it to. And, and as I'm hanging there around both sides of this apartment building, these police come flooding, and there's 40 or 50 cops made up of El Paso County Sheriff's deputies, Colorado Springs Police Department. They come pouring around the side with their guns pulled and drawn on me. You know, get on the ground, get on the ground, get the F on the ground, and I'm like, I don't know where else I'm going to go, and I look up, and there's cops, you know, cops above me, cops below me. So um, I pulled up a little bit on the rope, unwrapped the rope with my hand, and dropped, and I dropped three stories, and I landed, and it's a miracle that I didn't get hurt there, but I landed and rolled, and then there was um, two canine units right there with the dogs barking in my face. Um, I, and I remember laying there, and I could feel the heat from the dogs. And I'm just like, <laughs> these dogs uh, don't bite me. But that was it. And um, an officer stuck his knee in my back and cuffed me. And um, they put me in the back of the cop car. And the craziest thing is I remember the relief that I had as I sat in the back of that cop car because I knew it was all over. I remember Rihanna's... Um, umbrella song was on in the cop car as we were heading you know to county jail i just had a sense of peace for whatever reason and um and i I ended up getting into um county jail where i would find out um, that i was facing 384 years in prison and um with facing that much time i started to to get involved in with some some rough groups in, in the jail thinking that i'm going away to prison for the rest of my life I have to make a name for myself. I have to be tough. I have to be this this guy, this prison guy. So I get into a bunch of fights. Um, you know, I'm going up to these older kind of gangster guys, and they're saying, "Why well, need you to go beat this guy up, and I need you to go beat that guy up." So I'm doing these things, and I eventually end up in administrative segregation, uh, which is when you are in a concrete cell. Um, it's about 
eight foot by 12 foot. And there's a bunk in there. There's a metal bunk with a fire retardant mattress and a fire retardant pillow and a sink that is attached to a toilet. It's a one piece toilet sink and a desk. And that's it. That's all you have in there. And I was in there for 23 hours a day and I would get one hour where I could go make a phone call, take a shower and I would go back in my cell. And I was there for several months. And in that time frame that I was in administrative segregation, I had um, a revelation. It was one of the, it was an epiphany. It was an aha moment. Um, uh, and it was, and it, and it seems silly, but it, it was, it was, it was huge. Um, and I, and as I look back on it, it's the point as I try and counsel people who have been through these things before or that are going through these things now, because people come to me because I've been through them before they ask me, you know, what would you tell them? And this was the one thing that happened and I'm sitting in administrative segregation, um, in this, in this cell by myself, been there for a couple months. And all of a sudden I realized this is my fault. This is all my fault. And I know that seems silly or it sounds, you know, stupid or whatever, but really, no, this is all my fault because up to that point, I blamed it on my mom. I blamed it on my dad. I blamed it on the judges. I blamed it on, um, basically, um, everyone but me. I blamed it on corrupt system, you know, all the district attorneys. I mean, you name it. I blamed everybody. But then all of a sudden I realized this is my fault. And it was so liberating and it was so freeing because I realized if my choices created this circumstances, certainly I could make better choices that would create better circumstances. And I, and I, and I came to this realization that my choices are what create my circumstances, not the other way around. I wasn't a victim that I'd created these circumstances through my choices. And from that moment forward, I made a decision that I was going to do things differently. And I did, and it wasn't easy. Uh, I had habits. I had, you know, thought patterns. I had all these things that were wrong, but I knew that I could make better choices and that I was responsible for my choices. And I, and I started doing that from that moment. Um, I got on the phone, I called my grandma with tears in my eyes, um, and told her that, that I was going away forever. And, and she said, you know, I can tell there's been a huge change in your life, Brian. I can't put my finger on it. I don't know what it is, but I can tell there's something very different about you. Um, because up to this point, they all cut me off. I burned every bridge in my family. They were done with me. She said, we're going to get you an attorney. And, um, she did. And the next day I, I went to court. Um, someone that was supposed to show up to the court court date to be a witness in my trial. If I went to trial that day, didn't show up. So they had to postpone it for two weeks. Total miracle. The attorney was able to take my case and get me into what's called a mediation hearing. And what a mediation hearing is, is where you basically go into arbitration with your sentence. And it's like a used car sales. Well, I'll give you this. Well, no, we want that. Well, I'll give you this. And no, we want that. And they started at 32 years and I started at eight years and a mediator went back and forth between the district attorney and my lawyer and I back and forth, back and forth. And they finally came down to a 15 year sentence with a crime of violence sentence enhancer. And I told them, I don't, um, I, I, I don't want that sentence enhancer. I don't want to be labeled a violent criminal. I don't want to go to some, you know, hardcore prison and end up with swastikas all over my face and turn into that guy. I want to change my life. I want a chance at changing my life. I said, tell her I'll give her a year if she drops that crime of violence. So I ended up getting sent sentenced to 16 years and they dropped the crime of violence. Um, and I went back to my cell after that mediation and I knew that God had moved in my life. So, um, I went from there. Um, I got sentenced. I got sentenced to 16 years. And then I went to the Denver reception and diagnostic center. This is a maximum security prison and you roll up in a van and there's rolls upon rolls of razor wire. 
there's gun towers with armed guards in the gun towers. Um, they've got um, these little mirrors that go under the vans that see if there's bombs under the vans. And it's just, it was very sobering. It was very real that, hey, I, I'm in prison. Um, that's happening now. Um, and I went in there and I was there for a little while and they sent me to my first um, first facility in Werfano County Correctional Center. It was Walsenburg, Colorado. And it was a, a private prison. Um, and there's a lot of um, bad things that, that surround the idea of private prisons, but I had nothing but a very positive experience there. Um, it was very evident that everybody there um, that was involved with the staff members there, from our case managers to the teachers and things like that, um, that they wanted criminals to, to be rehabilitated, and they had a lot of programs. So um, I immediately started taking programs. I got my GED um, while I was at Walsenburg, and then I started taking college classes, and then I became uh, a guy that helped other guys get their GED, um, and that's what I did for work in there as I was a tutor, and I helped people get their GEDs. And when we come back... The final installment of this remarkable story, one that hits close to home, our own Brian Dawson. His story continues here on Our American Stories. to Brian Dawson's story and what a story it is. And again, this one hits close to home. He's one of our people. And by the way, it just shows you that anything can happen in a person's life. Here he is in prison, and he's already, you can hear it, he's a changed guy, and he wants to just get through this and come out on the other side. And so he's reoriented himself and his life right there in what may be the very worst place in America to be as a young man. Let's return to Brian's story. I was there for about nine months, but the very first person I met when I walked into Walsenburg was a guy by the name of Charles Frederick. And he comes up to me, he's this big guy, big burly guy. And he says, hey, my name's Charles and I'm a Christian and this is a faith pod. So in these prisons, they had these um, pods, they're called faith pods. And it was basically pods or units made up of about 120 inmates and it was dedicated to discipleship. And I don't know how I landed in there, why I landed in there. Um, but I was there. And Charles began to just tell me about Christ. Tell me about who Jesus was. Tell me about the gospel. I told him, Charles, I don't want to hear that stuff. You know, um, I don't care. Um, and, you know, he, he just said, okay. And then we, he began to talk to me about other things. And he met my physical needs. He gave me coffee. He gave me shorts. He gave me, you know, things that, you know, you get in there. You got nothing other than a couple pairs of underwear and, and a green suit. So he helped me um, with some of those things and just became my friend. And, and as conversation would permit, he would tell me about Christ. And that would go on for about nine months. He got shipped to another prison. Um, I left that prison. They shut that prison down. Um, and my security level dropped. And I bounced around a little bit for a couple of years. And then I ended up in Sterling Correctional Facility in Sterling, Colorado. The first person I see, there's Charles again. And he starts telling me about Jesus Christ again. And um, I'm like, man, I don't want to hear this stuff. Well... 
Um, we're there for a little bit and he goes, Hey, you know, you got parole coming up in a couple of years. It would be good for you to have some certificates, um, to, um, you know, show the parole board. Uh, I'm like, okay. And he goes, well, I'm, I'm the chaplain's assistant. I can get you in some programs. I'm like, okay, yeah, go ahead. Sign me up. So, um, he signs me up and, uh, they end up being faith-based programs. And I'm like, oh, I hate you, Charles. But the very first program I went into was a, um, uh, come as you are. We love everybody, you know, Muslim, Buddhist, Christian, whatever, just come as you are. And I went there and it was, it was okay, but I experienced fellowship and I met other Christians that were like Charles who are true, genuine Christians who lived this out. Um, they didn't just say they were Christians with their mouth. They lived it. And, and you could see the wisdom and things that they had. And I was, I was attracted to that. And, um, that went on for about 13 weeks. That class was over. And then Charles got me into another program called the truth project, um, which is put out by focus on the family and, and Dr. Del Tackett, amazing program. But when I got in there, it was not come as you are. It was, this is what the Bible says. Um, and I didn't like that. And I would sit, we would watch a video for an hour and then we would have table discussion and at the table discussion. I would argue with everyone there and tell them how stupid they were for believing what they, you know, th that they believe these things. And I almost got into a couple of fights with those guys. And, um, about three weeks into it, we were walking back to the unit and Charles just asked me, he says, Brian, why don't you just give him a chance? And I'd been asked that question before and, 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 and fought it and fought it and fought it. And for whatever reason, I said, okay, Charles. So, um, I went back to my cell that night and, um, I prayed, okay, God, if I need to believe these things to have a relationship with you, give me some kind of a sign. And I went to bed that night and I remember being in a really deep sleep and I had a nightmare. And in that nightmare, I fell off of a cliff and I woke up startled out of a nightmare and kind of, <gasps> and I looked and, um, it's really dark in the cells and we had, we're allowed to have digital clocks in there. And, and the digital clock with the red numbers in the cell said three, six, The only Bible verse I'd ever known as a kid, um, at all was John three sixteen. And if you know, John three sixteen, it answers the question that I asked him. That's exactly right. Yes, you do need to believe those things. And I tried to go back to sleep and just brush it off. But I've, I, I looked back at the clock and I felt like it was 3.16 for like 30 minutes. And I'm like, okay, maybe there's something to this. And uh, it was a Sunday morning at 3.16. So I got up and, and I went to uh, went to the church services that they offered in the prison. And um, I went and found my friend Ramon. I always had this idea in my head that Christians were weak. And my friend Ramon was a big black um, former gangbanger that had become a Christian. And there was nothing soft or weak about this guy. So I'm like, okay, I'll go with him. And I'm sitting in the very back row in the very far side as he goes through the sermon. And at the end of the sermon, um, the pastor does what he calls an invitation. I look at Ramon and I say, what's an invitation? And he goes, uh, he didn't say, oh, that's where you go make a decision for Christ or you invite Jesus in your heart. He didn't say any of that stuff. He said, if you've got something in your life that's hindering your relationship with God, you can go up there and pray with that man about it. So I went up there and... Um, I prayed with uh, Chaplain Davis, and to, to tell you a little about him, he's a um, a hard man, a calloused man, a cowboy. He's a man's man. He's a prison chaplain, and he doesn't do hugs. He doesn't do any of those kind of things, and, and he grabbed my, my hand to pray, and I could feel the calluses on his hands, and he slaps me on the shoulder with his other hand, and he says, how can I pray for you? And I told him, I said, look, you know, I don't, I'm not here to make any decisions. I just... I need you to pray that God would remove this callus from my heart because it's hardened and it's angry and it's angry towards Christians. So I, I want him to soften my heart so that the truth can come in. And Chaplain Davis prayed that. And I remember looking up after we were done praying and he's in front of 130 inmates with tears pouring down his face. 
And um, I knew something was very real about this, and I didn't know how to describe it, but it was, it was, it was very real. <clears throat> and I would later find out that Chaplain Davis and Charles had been praying for me for about a year and a half um, that I would get saved. And from that moment forward, I began to read my Bible. Uh, I read my Bible every single day. I would get up and read my Bible, read my Bible. I was at every single church service that they offered, any faith-based program they had. In that prison, I was there. There was a huge change. I went from telling these people they were stupid for believing what they did to absolutely believing it, basically overnight, and, and, and following that up um, with my behavior, following the change of heart that I had. Uh, that went on for about a year. And uh, my friends all had pen pals that they were writing when they were in prison. So I prayed and said, all right, God, um, I'd like to have a pen pal. And I got on the phone with my mom, and she was running a Facebook page for me. She says, you got a friend request from a girl. I'm like, okay, cool. Who is it? And she goes, do you know a girl named uh, Christina Ewan? I'm like, yeah, I know Christina Ewan. Um why? And she goes, well, she sent you a friend request. She remembered you and that she's been trying to find you for, you know, on and off for the last 10 years. I said, did you tell her I was in prison? Yeah, I told her you were in prison. She doesn't care. She wants to write you. I'm like, well, that's crazy. So I got her address and <clears throat> everything we did, all of our correspondence was based on Christ and what God was doing in our lives. And that was it. And that went on for several months. And um, I just knew that this was, you know, too crazy for it not to be God lining this up for something bigger. But I was scared to death because she's rejected me so many times in the past. And I had to write a letter and I sat down and wrote this letter and said, look, you know, I just, I, I feel like, you know, this, this is kind of something that may be meant to be and that, that, you know, I know it's asking a lot of you, but, um, that, that maybe we could ride this out together and, and get married when I get out type of, um, you know, this is meant for something more. And, um, I get the letter back and I remember hearing it at mail call and seeing that the letter was from Christina knowing that the answer was going to be inside of that envelope. And I opened the envelope and pulled out the letter and began to read it. And in the very first paragraph, she said, Brian, I've been thinking the exact same things. And I know God wants me to be with you and that I'm supposed to be here for you through this time. And that, you know, that we're, we're meant to be together. Um, and I remember reading that sitting in prison. And I mean, I could have floated up the steps to go back to my cell. It was, um, it was amazing. So, um, but I put in for a halfway house about six months after that. So I ended up getting accepted to that program. Um, my very first time putting in for a halfway house, which almost never happens with uh, the severity of my sentence and the size and scope of my sentence. Um, I got out my very first time um, putting in and, um, so it was it was a very very tough two years, but I graduated, um, and uh, Christina was there for the graduation. And the first visit I was allowed to go on, actually before I graduated, um, <clears throat> Christina and I um, got married. We got we eloped, I guess you could say. We got married at my grandma's house, um, and uh, a pastor that used to come to the prisons um, did my my marriage ceremony. So it was him and his wife, and my grandma were the only ones there at the wedding, and my mom was on speakerphone, and <laughs> so. My wife and I now have um, three daughters, plus my stepson, Brennan, who's an absolute stud, um, brilliant, smart kid, um, does very well in sports. And my girls are um, three years old, uh, is Gracie, two-year-old is Reagan, and our one-year-old uh, is Abigail, and we have another one on the way. So not only um, do I have, and this is kind of a cool um, caveat to the story. I've got a little piece of property with a, you know, little house, um, and, um, you know, the wife of my dreams and beautiful children, uh, four beautiful children about to be five, but I just moved my mom's, um, 
she has a camper and I just moved her camper onto my property and my mom who I had obviously all that resentment and animosity towards she now lives on my property and she's Mima to the kids and she got saved about two years ago and she's a completely different person so um, again like you I could not have sat in jail um, you know five six seven years ago whatever it was and said okay in five or ten years this is what I want um, and ever thought it would be what it is now and what a story folks and uh, I'm tearing up here because I know Brian and and to, to imagine that that can happen in people's lives anyone listening having someone in prison someplace that you just don't think they can come back from my goodness it's possible And we do faith-based stories here, folks. We don't shy away from it. There are all kinds of things that can get people out of a jam. And sometimes it's God, and sometimes it's a a secular counselor. Uh, But we don't shy away from the the religious aspect of people's lives here on this show. We don't preach, we don't proselytize, but we don't remove it. And my goodness, Brian Dawson's story is unimaginable without God. And send your stories, by the way, if you have a story like this, and I know you do. Because, my goodness, this country is filled with stories like this. And we're, we're tired of the negative stories. We want to hear stories of real hope, not the silly kind, the rugged kind. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. Brian Dawson's story, a beautiful family, a beautiful story of love and redemption, here on Our American Stories.